shall now turn to the chapter which we read together, Galatians chapter 5, and we shall consider verses 24 to 26. Galatians 5 at verse 24. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Hebrews 12:14 is a very important verse. It's speaking about holiness, and it says, "Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Nobody will get to heaven without holiness. Sanctification is the process by which we become holy. And it's vitally important for us, if we are intending going to heaven, it's vitally important for us to be sanctified in this life. I wonder, are you holy? Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Are you making progress in holiness? The unconverted are the very opposite of holy. They are wicked. They are dead in trespasses and sins. We believe in what's called total depravity. We're born in sin and shapen in iniquity. And until we're converted, we're in this state of total depravity. Not absolute depravity. Absolute depravity is the state of people in hell. They're as wicked as they can be. But when we're in this life, there's restraining grace, common grace, keeping us back. Otherwise, we'd turn this world into hell. So we're not as wicked as we could be, not as wicked as the wicked will be in hell. But we're totally depraved. Now that means that in our unconverted state, every part of us is depraved. The mind is depraved. The mind with which we think. We think in a depraved way. The emotions are depraved. So that the things that move us and stir us are evil. The things that we love and delight in are evil. And then the will is depraved. So the decisions that we take are depraved decisions. The mind, the emotions, the will, totally depraved. And also, we're in a condition of total inability. Arminians think that people can decide for Christ. 
They can repent, they can believe, they can take the first step and then God will help them. But if you're dead, you can't take the first step. Our condition by nature is total inability, unable to make one step towards God in and of ourselves, by our own will and desire, because by nature we're children of Adam. And we fell from the state wherein we were created into a state of sin and misery. And we love sin and we hate God. We love what's evil. And we hate what is good. A state of total depravity and total inability. And that's why we need the new birth. We need to be regenerated. We need to be created again. Created anew in Christ Jesus. We need this mighty change to take place in our lives. A change that begins with effectual calling. God calls men and women to repentance and then the call becomes an effectual call, a call in which there is power, a call that reaches to men and women and penetrates deaf ears. And it penetrates deaf ears because these deaf ears are created anew, they're opened. And eyes are opened. And heart is opened. So the call of the effectual call comes. And they that hear the call of the Son of God shall live. And it's that resurrection that is the new birth. Regeneration. The effectual call is immediately followed by the new birth, the new creation. And then comes faith and repentance, new life. Well, sanctification takes place in three steps. First, there's what's called definitive sanctification, the radical break with the past. And then, It's followed by progressive sanctification. Day by day, dying to sin and living to righteousness. Growing like Christ. And then, when we die, comes glorification. When we're made perfect. Let's look at these three things together today. First of all, definitive sanctification. You'll notice here, verse 24, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh. Now that's the past tense. It's talking about something that happened at a point in the past. The tense that's used in the Greek is the aorist tense, a punctilious 
punctilier tense. Just one point. It's a, as it were, at one point in the past, something amazing happened. The flesh was crucified. The old man was crucified. At a certain point, we died. And we were buried. And we rose again. Romans chapter 6 particularly speaks about this definitive sanctification. You know, before it takes place, we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're sinners. And then suddenly, we we become saints. And every Christian is a saint. The Roman Catholics think that saints are some very special people. After they die, they become saints. But you notice in the next epistle even, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are in Ephesus. Who were the saints in Ephesus? The Christians in Ephesus. The believers. Every believer is a saint. You were a sinner, you're now a saint. Sanctified. Sanctified by definitive sanctification. Definitive sanctification. Another way of (coughs) thinking about it is regeneration or the new birth. It's what happens when you're born again. If any man be in Christ... He is a new creature, a new creation. And by you are united to Christ in your effectual calling. And that union with Christ produces this. This definitive sanctification. This huge change from what you were, dead in trespasses and sins, Now you're a saint. You're not a perfect saint. Far from it. None of us are perfect saints. But you are a saint. This verse speaks about crucifying the flesh. And it uses the past tense. Crucified. You have crucified the flesh. Romans 6 verse 6 says that the old man was crucified. Who is this old man that is crucified with Christ? The old man is, of course, the unconverted man. The unconverted man suffers. Something drastic happens. The old man is crucified. The old man is dead. The old man is buried, not just dead, but buried. And the new man is risen. Again, Romans 6, verse 6, when it speaks of the old man being crucified, it's the year is tense in the Greek. The past, punctiliar tense, happens in a moment in the past, an act of God, 
So Paul says, verse 8 of chapter 6 of Romans, we be dead with Christ. If then we be dead with Christ, we are dead with Christ because of this definitive sanctification. Dead to our master that ruled over us. Dead to sin in that sense. Such a huge change has taken place. And therefore he says in verse 11, reckon yourselves, consider yourselves, think of yourselves in this way. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the way you're to contemplate yourself as somebody who's dead to sin, but alive unto God. And therefore, the apostle says in chapter 6, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. You're dead to it. Your master is dead. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go to the taskmasters again. Don't subject yourself to Pharaoh being a slave to him. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's important for us to realize that a huge change takes place at conversion. There's a radical break with the past. A sinner becomes a saint. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but you're not dead any longer. You're alive now, alive to God. Now the Spirit of God dwells in you. The flesh has been crucified. And so you are to be what you are. Be those in whom the flesh has been crucified. Be those who have died to the old life. Be those who are alive to God. So that's the first thing we have here then. Definitive sanctification. That great change that takes place in the new birth. Now next, progressive sanctification. A huge change has taken place, but the flesh remains in us. We're something like a garden where the soil has been turned over. And it all looks black and clean. But before long, little green shoots begin to appear. Little weeds start poking up their heads again. Well, that's the way it is, isn't it, in the Christian? This huge change, this ploughing of the field, as it were. But there's still the roots of corruption there. There's still the flesh. The flesh is still there. The roots of corruption remain indwelling sin continues to be a problem. And so there's got to be a daily battle against sin. Here's one of the great marks of a Christian. The Christian is somebody 
who's involved in war. At one time we were dead in our sins, but now we're at war with sin. Now we're fighting. We hate sin. We hate Satan. And we fight against sin and Satan. We are to mortify sin in our members, put sin to death. If you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. So through the Spirit, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, you are to be mortified, putting to death, trampling down upon sinful desires and sinful affections. We have it here in verse 17 of Galatians 5. For if the flesh lusteth for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. There's certain things we'd love to do. There's a certain kind of life that we would love to live. But we can't. And why can't we? Because the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So there's this war going on inside us, the spirit of God. Why is he called the Holy Spirit? Is it because he's holier than the Father and the Son? Of course not. Father, Son and Spirit are infinitely holy. He's called the Holy Spirit because his job is to make us holy, to sanctify us. And when he comes to dwell in us at the new birth, he begins lusting. And the word lust is used here not in a sinful way, but in a sense to describe a powerful desire. So the Spirit has a powerful desire within us against the flesh. And the flesh has a powerful desire against the Spirit. So we get these two fighting against one another. The Spirit and the flesh fighting against each other. <clears throat> Romans chapter 7 talks about this, doesn't it? The good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I feel so wretched. I am carnal, sold under sin. Sin is so powerful within me. The good that I would love to do, I don't do it. The law of God that I would love to keep, I fail to keep. And the things I hate, that's the things that I do. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. I have this great joy in God's law. I love it and would love to be pure. But I find this flesh within me, this indwelling sin and corruption. And so 
all the days of my life, as long as I live in this world, I have to be battling, fighting, resisting, trampling down upon sinful desires. We need more and more, as it says here, verse 25, to be led by the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Verse 19, the works of the flesh are manifest. Fleshly works, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like the works of the flesh. Christians can indulge somewhat in these things. Sometimes we do fall into these things, of which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are carrying on in these things, those who are continuing in uncleanness and adultery and drunkenness and hatred, they cannot get into heaven. No, we must crucify the flesh. We must die daily unto sin. We must walk in the spirit and not according to the flesh. Because the fruit of the Spirit is quite different. The works of the flesh are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, etc. But the fruit of the Spirit, when the Spirit is dominant, when the Spirit is ruling in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, Gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance. Against such there is, of course, no law. So then, the Christian life begins with a big jump in holiness. Definitive sanctification. But then there's the long, continuing struggle all the days of our life to mortify sin against the flesh. And then thirdly, there's glorification. Remember the shorter catechism when it asks the question, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies, being still united to Christ, to rest in the graves until the resurrection. How amazing to think that the dead body in the grave is united to Christ. But it is. And how can we say that? Because the Bible teaches the doctrine of union with Christ. And you, when you become a Christian, you're united to Christ. 
And you are composed not just of a soul, but a soul and a body. And because you have a body as well as your soul, your body is united to Christ as well as your soul. So body and soul, you're united to Christ. And when body and soul are parted, your soul goes to heaven, united to Christ, and your body stays in the grave, united to Christ, sleeping in the grave until the resurrection. When body and soul are raised, united together again, and continuing forevermore in not just a spiritual union with Christ, but even a physical union, being with him forevermore. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness. How can we argue that the souls of believers are immediately made perfect in holiness? Where does it say that in the Bible? Well, one passage which makes it plain is Hebrews 12 and verse 23. There we're told about the spirits of just men made perfect. How wonderful. The spirits of the righteous. They're made perfect. And they're made perfect at death. You remember when Lazarus died, the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus, the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. There he was in heaven, and nothing unclean can enter heaven. Without are dogs and whoremongers and sorcerers, and whosoever loveth and telleth a lie. But in heaven, it's perfection. The souls of just men made perfect. As long as we're here, it's a constant struggle. Sin is so easy for us. It's so hard to resist it. Sin is so natural. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Desirous of vain glory. There's a bit of it in us all, isn't there? Wanting to look good, wanting to be appreciated, wanting people to think highly of us, wanting to make a good impression. The hypocrisy, the pretense, the show, desirous of vainglory, and by doing that we provoke one another. Provoking them not to love and good works, but provoking them to anger and to displeasure with us because we trample on their toes and we hurt their pride, provoking one another and envying one another. So where does all the envy and the strife come from? It comes from the flesh within us. It comes from desires of vain glory, provoking one another. It's so easy to sin. We think of the commandments of God. Think, for example, of the Sabbath day. Now, some people think that they keep the Sabbath day because they don't go to to work on the Sabbath. Maybe they're a lorry driver or a farmer 
They don't go to work on the Sabbath. They keep the Sabbath day. But you see, the commandment to keep the Sabbath day goes much further than not working. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And how can you keep the Sabbath day holy? Not just by refraining from work, but by spending the whole day in the public and private exercises of worship. Now, can any of us, can any of us in our speech keep the Sabbath day? Can any of us in our thoughts keep the Sabbath day? Spending the whole day in holy thoughts? Spending the whole day in prayer? in meditation, in praise and worship, in the public and private exercises of worship, without thinking anything about daily work, the past week, the coming week, daily pleasures, daily amusements, how hard it is, how impossible it is for us to keep the Sabbath day holy. We're all Sabbath breakers. Breaking the Sabbath in thought, in word, and in deed. But one day, we're going to keep it perfectly. And it's not just going to be one day in seven. It's actually going to be an eternal Sabbath. And we will keep it constantly worshipping God in public and private, together and on our own, in our hearts, in our speech, in our actions, throughout the endless ages of eternity, in thought, word, and deed. The eternal Sabbath. Perfection. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who's pure in heart? We long to be pure in heart. But we're so far from it. But one day, we will be pure in heart. Completely pure. And we shall see God. We shall be like, we shall see him. And we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall be pure in heart. Pure like God. Holy like God. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And we shall be singing wholeheartedly unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, praising and honouring him forever. Yes, we long for that perfection. And the moment we die, when we think of our loved ones, I think of my parents when they died, particularly my dad, who was the first person really close to me who died. He'd been quite frail and feeble towards the end, struggling to speak after having suffered from strokes and struggling to, to cope in various ways. And then to think of him, as I did at that time, perfect. 
singing the praises of the Lord. He wasn't very good at singing. He didn't have a great sense of tune, but he has a sense of tune today. To think of him perfect in his soul, in the presence of the Lord. In a sense, I remember feeling that heaven came near our house that day. It seemed almost as if heaven was in the next room. It was so close. As I thought of my my dad in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, made perfectly holy. Perfectly holy. What a comfort that is to us as we think of our loved ones. We sorrow not as others who have no hope. Oh yes, we do sorrow and we do miss them. But we know that they're perfectly holy and perfectly happy. Well then, in conclusion, the practical implications of all this. First, definitive sanctification. Think of the change that has taken place. Live as one in whom this definitive sanctification has taken place. Don't be a slave to sin and to Satan. Don't be the servants of the devil. Be as one who has died with Christ to the old life. Lie not, as Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 9, Lie not, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. Lie not then. Don't tell lies like like the old man, the unconverted man. Leave that past behind you. Don't let sin reign in your members that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Your master is dead, your old master. Don't go back to him again. Be a new man. Be a new woman. Walk in the light with your Savior. So think of the change. And then remember you're in a war. There's been a huge change, but you're not perfect yet. Far from it. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Flee from fornications. Run away from idols. Don't argue with Satan. He always wins arguments. The best thing is to run away from him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The only way we can resist him is by saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written. Avoid places of danger and situations of danger. Be aware of your weakness. Don't make excuses for your sin. Hate sin. Look to the Spirit to help you. If you, through the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. And it's only through the Spirit you can do it. You need his help. Wear the whole armor of God. The breastplate of righteousness. The perfect righteousness of Christ. The helmet, hope of salvation. That clear hope of heaven. Your feet shod with the preparation that the gospel of peace gives. Your loins girt about with truth, knowing the truth. The shield of faith able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, quick and powerful. 
And then, finally, think, think much of heaven. Keep the end in view. Remember, one day you're going to be perfect. And remember, you are more than a conqueror through him who loved it, who, through him who loved you. More than conquerors through Christ. Be strong, therefore, and strive more and more to run the race, to fight the fight, to keep the faith, and to be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank thee that thou hast said the truth before us, and in the truth thou hast told us about these wonderful things, the work of God in the soul of man. We pray that thou wouldst bring on that work in our lives. May we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, dying daily unto sin, living unto righteousness, growing more and more like Christ, renewed in his image. Forgive us for sin, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Our closing praise is Psalm 51, verses 7 to 13. Psalm 51, at verse 7. Do thou with hyssop sprinkle me, I shall be cleansed so. Yea, wash thou me, and then I shall be whiter than the snow. Of gladness and of joyfulness make me to hear the voice that so these very bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Verses 7 to 13 to God's praise. Do
Nations, the service is on Sabbath at the usual times, 11 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. There's also a note here that Mrs. Ferrier's condition has improved, so that's a great cause for thanksgiving. But there's also a note concerning Mrs. Barbara Shuttleworth, a member of the Bewley congregation. <coughs> she died very suddenly from a stroke on Monday. Her husband, Ralph, is now being looked after in Balafiri care home. So remember Ralph in this, um, in his sadness and his bereavement. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.